We're in one of my favorite passages uh, this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, that beautifully describe Jesus our Lord. So I'm going to ask if you will stand in our great God's honor as I read his word. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, uh, my tongue and each tongue here are a part of all the tongues, Lord. You have said all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Why not today, Lord, for each one here, for me, that we might confess freely and bravely and without hesitation that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Father, we need you and we need to hear from you, Lord. It is not about what we can do, it's always been about what you have done and continue to do, Lord. So, Father, I just pray that you would um, continue to move in this hour, uh, this time set aside for you. I thank you, Father, for uh, how I have already been ministered to, Lord, for your people. May that continue. In Christ's name we pray. A number of years ago, the Christian organization Youth for Christ featured two promising young evangelists. The evangelist who received the most praise, whose gifts were obvious and impossible to miss, was a guy named Charles Templeton. Many of you have maybe never heard of Charles Templeton. Uh, the other guy uh, was a good friend of his named Billy Graham. Charles Templeton went through a crisis of faith where he had some questions regarding Jesus. He struggled with those questions, and five years later, Charles Templeton would not only leave the preaching ministry as an evangelist, he would leave the faith altogether. The other guy, Billy Graham, <laughs> found himself alone in the woods praying, saying, God, I do not understand, and there are some ways I am having trouble believing. Help me with my unbelief. I surrender. And he surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord. And we know about Billy Graham. But Lee Strobel opened in his book, A Case for Christ, with this story. Fifty years after Charles Templeton left the Christian faith, 
Lee Strobel said, I want to find him. He's in his 80s by this time. Lee Strobel shows up at his house. He's agreed to have an interview. And Strobel just asked him, what do you think of Christ now? What do you think of Jesus Christ? And here's how Templeton responded. He said, he was the greatest human being who ever lived. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus Christ. And then unexpectedly, tears began to fall from his eyes. And once he was able to compose himself, he said this, I miss him. I miss him. I miss him. All those years, all those questions, all that regret, and he missed the one. Some other well-known people throughout history, here's what they said about Christ, a few of these. Albert Einstein, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. Napoleon Bonaparte, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Author H.G. Wells, I am a historian I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And this one is my favorite, I think. Uh, Elvis Presley. Some of y'all remember him. Uh, this young fan came up to him swooning. It's the king, it's the king. And Elvis said, no, honey, I'm not the king. Christ is the king. I'm just a singer. In this passage, we have this description of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And, and we want to look at that this morning. Someone has said, you can tell how deep a well is by how long the rope is that's lowered into the well. And here we have the most beautiful picture of the longest rope of all that extends from heaven down to earth in what we know as the incarnation. God taking on the form of humanity, uh, the God-man, and doing a work that he alone could do. Donald Gray Barnhouse explains it like this. I love this. He says, love that reaches up is adoration. Love that reaches out is affection. But love that stoops is grace. That is the message of, of Christ. That, that is the message of, of his work. God himself stooped on our behalf. And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at our text here. And I want to start out speaking about his humility. And notice how our text begins. Um, he says here, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. I notice they're always updating these translations. <laughs> in this latest update, it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. My original here, it says that, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
here. It says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. For his own advantage. Um, this word that says, who being in very nature God, that word nature, is a Greek word. It may sound familiar, morphe, metamorphosis, right in the middle of that word. And we usually think of it being associated with change. But in this case, this word morphe, it literally means that which cannot change. And, and so what he is saying here is that he is in very essence, his very nature, who he is, is God. That that does not change. He was God before Bethlehem. He was not created. He is creator. He is the maker of all. And then there is another word that is used as the scripture goes on here, talking about his form. His, it is the word schema that refers to something that does change. And of course, uh, the example would be, you know, I'm a human being. That doesn't change. We're humans. But what does change is our appearance. These bodies do not stay the same. We come out of our, our mother's womb and it seems like at rapid pace uh, uh, those little ones begin to grow. And you, you sit back and it, very quickly you say, man, how much time has passed? You know, so suddenly this infant that I was holding and looking at and, and now I've, I've got to get clothes. These clothes don't fit. And that doesn't stop until they're grown. It's like, I can't keep shoes on this kid. And you look back at that, and I always thought it was so unfair that shoes for a four- and five-year-old or shoes for a toddler cost as much as my shoes. And how long are they going to wear them? You know, a few weeks, a month? <laughs> but the body changes. As you go through the years, we, we don't look the same. And I, I remember when Cindy's mom... Uh, at her mom's funeral, and they were showing slides. I'm going back, and they had this one slide of Cindy and I uh, when we were engaged walking on the beach. And one of my kids reached over and he, he elbowed me. He said, Dad, you used to be ugly. And I thought, okay, so what you're saying is not anymore, right? You know, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, but it changes. And even now, you know, guys, in my mind, I see myself a certain way. But when I look in the mirror, that is not the way I remember. You know, things have changed. And so the schema, that there, there is a change. And with Jesus Christ, he's in very nature God. It says that, he said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. But the schema, he, he says who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And so in that outward appearance, taking on human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he, it was not to be grasped what he left. He had the comforts of heaven. He was worshipped. There were angels around him. It was a place of glory. And he left that place to come to this place. The place that we inhabit. That is humility. That is what happened in his, his birth. As a matter of fact, 
it says he made himself nothing in our text. It, it is a picture of being willing to empty yourself. Um, say it was a very hot day and, you know, I'm exercising outside in the heat. And I'm very thirsty. I'm excited to get back to my car where there is a cooler full of ice and Gatorade. And man, as quick as I can open that Gatorade, guess what? I am going to get rid of the contents of the Gatorade bottle because I'm desperate <laughs> for the Gatorade. And, and so the contents of the bottle are fully emptied. And, and so in here it says that Jesus Christ emptied himself. But what did he empty himself of? It wasn't his deity. He never at any time ceased to be God, he tells us in John 17, that priestly prayer, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. So what did he, what did he let go of? What did he empty himself of? Well, the first thing was that privilege. What he deserves, all worship, all glory, all attention, the throne of heaven. That's the place where he deserves to sit. But he let go of that. Why? Because he had a mission. He refused to grasp onto that. He refused to white knuckle the privilege that he deserves. He freely opened his hands and he let go of that. Hey, look, as Americans, we are all about having inalienable rights. The right of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and don't get in my way don't step on me don't take away my rights and we spend a lot of energy on that subject and yet Jesus who deserved the rights the worship deserves it all he said I'm letting go of that and I'm going down to earth to take on humanity human form human likeness so he emptied himself of that privilege. But not only did he empty himself of that privilege, he emptied himself of independent authority. He came down and he emptied himself of that ability to rule, to be authoritative. Instead, he was in complete conjunction with the Heavenly Father. They were completely synchronized. <laughs> he said, I and the Father are one. His purpose was to do the Father's will. He said, I always do those things that please Him. When He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He struggled. Why? Because although fully God, He's fully man. He didn't want to suffer. He didn't want to experience pain. He knew what was before Him. And He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And of course, after that intense battle, he said, Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. That's what he came for. Guys, that's what he lived for. Notice in the text in verse 7, he says, He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus wasn't a good man. Jesus is the God-man. And he came... Not merely as a God that was uh, separated or isolated from humanity. Man, he became a man. 
here's how one commentator put it. He said, So when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he entered into a physical body from which there was no escape. When he died on the cross, he died physically. When Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't a phantom. He rose physically in a glorified human body. When he ascended into heaven, he ascended there physically. And today, Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God physically. Interesting to think today, right now, there is a man in heaven at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ. And he will return to earth physically one day. Another put it this way. The tongue that called forth the dead was a human one. The hand that touched the leper had dirt under his fingernails. The feet upon which the woman wept were calloused and dusty. And his tears, don't miss the tears, they came from a heart as broken as yours or mine has ever been. What this means is that when Jesus cut himself, he bled. When he stumbled up a stairway, he fell. When he slept at night, he probably snored. How can we grasp that? That God himself entered our world. He made his home in our neighborhood. He dwelt among us full of grace and truth. The greatest culture shock of all. To walk where we walked. We are getting ready. Oh, uh, it's around the end of January. Our daughter is getting married in India. And so we have been reading up on India. Trying to learn about India. One of the things we discovered is the most polluted city in the world. Is New Delhi, India. The closest city to where Abu. Our future son-in-law family lives. We were looking a, a little better today. Cindy follows the, they have a score of, I don't know exactly how it works, but the, how clean and pure the air is. And ours in Bristol runs 20 to 50. She checked it there. It was in the 200s. Like, oh, man, you know, I'm not going to be able to breathe. And then they have things like Abi talks about. You walk down the street in the middle of uh, the city there, and there's monkeys everywhere, and they got long tails, and they might smack you. You got to watch these monkeys because you don't know what they're going to do. And of course, uh, you have to be careful what you eat and what you drink because you do in so many countries that, you know, got these small microbes you can't see, and who knows what they're going to do to your digestive system. And they're different than ours here. So, anyway. Uh, and we, uh, Cindy was reading to me from one article, and this lady was saying, I still can't get over the culture shock of when I went to India. And I thought, well, thanks a whole lot, because that is where we are headed. And man, that is nothing. That is so tiny compared to even a thought of God himself coming here, dwelling among us. Why? Because that is what was necessary in order to save us. He had to enter our world. That is, that is what he did. And what was his purpose? I, I love it. Isaiah tells us he, that he was a suffering servant. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. He served fishermen, he served harlots, he served sick people, he served suffering people. 
He was a servant, not attending merely to his own needs, but to the needs of everybody around him. He noticed people because he came to love people. That's our Lord. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. The scripture goes on. It tells us, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And a cross is so much more than just a piece of jewelry that is worn. Think about the cross as you have the beams that were extended. Jesus' hands were nailed to that cross. And those hands that were nailed to the cross are hands that came for the purpose so that we might be embraced by the perfect love of God. That we might be able to receive the holy hug that He wants to give to us. That's the cross. And then you think about the vertical beam of the cross as it reminds us of heaven to us. God stooped, grace given to us. And that is how he died. It is not only how he lived as a servant, it is how he died upon that cross. These are the words from a song by Frederick Lehman uh, entitled Love of God. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich, how pure, how measureless. We are recipients of grace that came through his humility. Next, he talks about his glory. As we see God clearly, as we look at Jesus, look at verse 9, he says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, this up to this point, the scripture tells us what Jesus voluntarily did for us, that he left the comforts of heaven and the worship seated at the throne of God in the heavens itself. He left that place to come to this place where we are, and he did it for us. But now we are told not only what Jesus did, what the Son did for us, we are told what the Father thought of it, of the sacrifice that he made. He tells us God exalted him to the highest place. You see, Jesus went down, down, down <laughs> until he came to the very bottom of death upon a cross. And then he was raised up, up, up to the glory of God for his perfect work. So, what did that involve? Well, number one, that involves the resurrection. You see, he was placed in a grave, but the grave couldn't hold him. He was resurrected from the dead. Not only was he resurrected, but after a time, and what a time that must have been as he spent days, and people saw the resurrected Christ, and people were able to just hang out with him. What a mind-blowing thought. But then came the time after the resurrection, after the time among the people that followed him, of the ascension, where he would go and he would be restored 
to his rightful place, the place he left for us. And he was restored there. That's the ascension. And then thirdly is the dominion. Seven times in the New Testament we are told that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. That speaks of his authority. It speaks of his power. We read about John the Apostle in the book of Revelation as he had a vision, as he saw Jesus again, this time not as a suffering servant, but in Revelation chapter 1, he says his face was as bright as the sun in its brilliance. Later in Revelation 19, we read, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now, that is authority. Eyes blazing with fire, many crowns, one crown wasn't enough. Many crowns placed upon his head, showing his ultimate authority. And, and there was written on him, guys, a name that only he knows because he deserves it all. There is not one name that is sufficient to describe him. There is not one name that is adequate. And, and so only he fully knows that name. Co compare that to his ministry here. His own family said, well, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. There were others that rejected him. The hometown he grew up in, it says that he was amazed. He was astonished because he couldn't do what he wanted to do in his own hometown because of a lack of faith. They saw him, they watched him, but they did not believe. And, and that restricted what he wanted to do in his own hometown. They saw how he loved people. They saw how he healed people. They, they saw how he taught with an authority that had to come from God himself. And yet when it came to that ultimate moment where the crowd was out and there was Jesus and there was another man named Barabbas who was a known murderer, a criminal. <laughs> and they chose to set Barabbas free. And then the question was asked, what do you want me to do with Jesus? You know what they said? They said, crucify him. Crucify him. He faced rejection. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That was the response of his ministry. But it is not the response of the heavenly father. The father responded with glory and exaltation to Jesus. Notice what it says in verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. And then what does it say? It says, and God the father gave Jesus the name, the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And of course, we think of the name Jesus. He, he will save my people from their sins. And, and certainly that was the mission of Jesus. But you know what? There were many in that day who were named Jesus, who had that name. So I don't think it was merely the name of Jesus that is being emphasized here. But I think it is the very title that accompanies that name as is described in the scripture in verse 10. Um, he says, And at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In verse 11, that every tongue could, should confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So that name, although I, as I read from Revelation 19, we don't fully know the name, the full name of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we hear this description that tries to put it all in one word, one explanation, and it is Lord. Complete authority. He is fully in charge. He is Lord. He is the one who calls the shots. <laughs> he is the one who holds our salvation. He is the one who holds our hope. He is the one to whom we call because there is no one else. As Peter said, where else can I go, Lord? <laughs> it is you. It's you, Lord. Every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how the Father acknowledged Jesus as Lord. This is from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. When he, that is God the Father, presented his honored Son to the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. This is how the Father spoke of the Son. Let all worship him. In verse 8 it says, but about the Son he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Was the sacrifice of Christ fully God willing to die on your behalf? Man, that's crazy, amazing news. The greatest news of all for us. And so how, how does this impact us how does this affect us i mean after all uh we are called to be like christ right is self-sacrifice worth it is surrender worth it uh and we all have different struggles we all have different burdens uh and we're called to carry our cross what does that look like um, get some different answers i'm sure in this room as you could tell me burdens that you're facing and yet for all of us, we are called to do it for Christ. To surrender whatever that is to Jesus. And to do that how? Humbly. <laughs> Not griping and complaining. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we're told, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, Everyone who exalts himself will be humble, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, um, the way up is down, and the way down is up. And that leads us to the last part here, which I'm talking about, which is, is his mentality. We are to have the mind of Christ. It says in one translation, he starts out verse 5, May this mind that is in Christ be in you. May you have that same mind of Christ. That's the call. In this translation, your attitude, or in the updated translation, in your relationships, may that be your mindset. What did he think? That is should be our goal of what we should think. Our minds being transformed uh, through his word means that his word... Uh, becomes mine, that he, he changes me, he connects me to himself as he does that work. And Let's go back here in Philippians chapter 2, to the very beginning of chapter 2. Um, he says, 
If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Like-minded, how? Like Jesus. Like Jesus. Verses 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. What God did for you and for me. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Man, can you imagine what God could do through a people who actually lived like this? Who actually looked not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others? Who, who did not act out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility? thought about the, those around them following the example of Jesus Christ our Lord what could he do what could he do among us sometimes we have the weirdest idea of what humility is I mean it's just kind of a you know well be humble is you know be kind of nerdy you know and just kind of deflect attention I, I remember reading in one book about a lady, and she she was a gifted singer, but after she would sing, people would try to compliment her and say, thank you so much for that song, and she would say, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit, it's not me, it's the work of the Spirit in me, and so finally the preacher had enough of it, and he said, one day she had sung, and he went up to her, and he said, thank you for that song, it was a beautiful song, she said, it's not me, it was the Holy Spirit, he says, well, I remember a couple of weeks ago, when Alice came up and sang, the Holy Spirit used her better than he used you. <laughs> okay, I, I shouldn't do that. Don't worry, I won't do that to you. <laughs> it's not a false humility. It's just simply seeing him and what he has done. And in some small way, I want to be like that Jesus. I want that to mark my life. It says in James and 1 Peter, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. D.L. Moody says, be humble or you'll stumble. It is so critical. Uh, he says, um, uh, you know, here's the thing about humility. It's elusive. If you think you're humble, you're not. Right? Or like maybe you heard the story of the preacher. He said, Man, I have this great sermon about humility, but I'm waiting for a bigger crowd to preach it. Oh, humility. The Titanic, it took 12,000 men two straight years to build. There was so much hoopla with the Titanic that the captain of the ship said, this ship is unsinkable. Even God cannot sink this ship. So, April 14th, 1912, the unsinkable ship sank, right? Uh, Proverbs 16, uh, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Man, you look in the Bible, pride got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. Saul got kicked out of the kingdom. 
pride got Haman kicked out of the Persian court. Nebuchadnezzar got kicked out of the Babylonian court. Pride ruins marriages, families, businesses, churches. It's a cancer of the soul. And the only way to treat such a cancer is humbling ourselves before God. It's, it's humility. So here's a question. I'm at the end here. Uh, we think about the mentality of Christ. Here's the question I want you to think about. If Jesus humbled himself to accept death, can't we humble ourselves to accept life? If Jesus humbled himself to accept death, can't you humble yourself to accept life? You see, there's some of us, we've only admired Jesus. Man, how Jesus works in the life of my grandparents. Man, how Jesus works in uh, my Sunday school teacher or, you know, a, a person I know at work. But you've admired him, but have you worshipped him? You've seen him from a distance, but have you met him? And the two are vastly different. It's not enough to see Jesus from a distance. He wants you to meet him face to face close up let's pray lord um, thank you for your word thank you jesus is our lord father we worship you we worship the son of god who did not consider equality as something to be grasped but made himself nothing <laughs> taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as man he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, that's the message. Uh, Father, may we respond to that message because it's the good news. Um, Lord, maybe there's someone here who the message has never clicked. And now you're hearing it. You're hearing it. And time to respond. Maybe there's others here and like Charles Templeton. I don't know. Something happened and you kind of left him. And you realize, I miss him. I miss Jesus. It's not too late. Come home. That's the call. Father, we worship you. We seek you in this time that we've set aside for you. Father, just move. In Christ's name we pray.